You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Since ancient times, men have speculated about creatures in the sky. Modern culture is full of extraterrestrials in fiction and in folklore. If the testimony of witnesses is true, we are being visited by a variety of strange creatures. Tall, blonde Scandinavians, perhaps coming in peace? Dangerous and cold-hearted reptilians who might be working to take over our Earth governments. And elfishly tiny, gray-skinned creatures who can kidnap people right out of their beds and who like to probe their victims in very uncomfortable places and kill our livestock in quite bizarre fashion. If you believe the testimony. But what kind of evidence would it take to convince a skeptic? Just how likely is it that we are being visited by creatures from another world? Aliens from outer space. Today, on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Hi, welcome to Monster Talk, presented by Skeptic Magazine. Monster Talk is the show that examines monsters under the bright light we call science. I'm Blake Smith, and together with my co-hosts, Benjamin Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Kieran Stolzno, Skeptical Blogger, Linguist, and Mystery Investigator, we talk about monsters with experts who can help us determine what claims are plausible, which are implausible, and which are virtually impossible. Today our guest is astronomer and author Dr. Phil Plate. But first we want to chat about aliens from outer space. A variety of people are reporting aliens of various types today. As a skeptic, it's hard for me to believe anything without evidence. I mean hard evidence to support the idea that creatures are traveling across space and coming here. But what I find most surprising about the claims, besides the fact that uh, the aliens can bend the laws of physics, is the way that even though they come from other planets, according to the stories, 
um, why did they appear to be humanoid? I mean, evolution shows us that body types could be just about anything, but for some reason, almost all of these aliens appear as humanoid. Now, one reason might be that the aliens are in a feedback loop from uh, Hollywood and that we base our cultural aliens on the kinds that we see in movies. But even so, it's possible that uh, movies could be providing us with other types. Well, yeah, but it's 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 easier for uh, special effects uh, creators in films to make a humanoid uh, creature than uh, than uh, I mean I remember there was a so, someone was talking about the original um, it was either Doctor Who or or uh, Star Trek and someone was complaining about, about the early series about why is it that all the aliens uh, look more or less like like people and of course the answer was well uh, you know that's that's what's cheap to to do with the makeup. But it is interesting in just looking at the, the history of aliens because I would argue that, uh, that the history of aliens in popular mythology shows that, um, that the original aliens uh, were much more monstrous, if you will, than the ones we have these days. Uh, you, you look back at, for example, War of the Worlds uh, and other stories of aliens around that time. Uh, there are aliens that are coming to Earth to threaten us, to destroy us, and this and that. Whereas, of course, over the last, you know, say 30, 40, 50 years, uh, there's been uh, this change, sort of as you talked about. Uh, so, from where we go from a monstrous, evil, threatening alien uh, to sort of a, a good guy, you know, warm, fuzzy, we, we bring peace and, and messages if you don't, if you, don't uh, you know, do better about the earth and clean up the earth and um, peace and love and all that. So, I would say that, in my, in my opinion, aliens certainly began as monsters. They've, they've since then become more, uh, more cuddly and friendly. You make a good point. Uh, of course, H.P. Lovecraft was writing way back in the uh, 30s and 40s, and his stories dealt with aliens that were nothing like human. In fact, humans were less than significant, and it really kind of demonstrated a, a level of uh, cosmic horror that was un. Did you say the cosmic horror? No, I, <laughs> I said cosmic horror that was not known before. Oh, that. I'm sorry. that's okay. Just I just want to make sure we're on the same topic here. Anyway, I love Lovecraft, and his his aliens were not humanoid at all. So, where do you think our stories of alien abduction came from? Do you think that they were born of uh, Whitley Stryber's communion book? No, no. I, I think the earliest ones uh, that were really important culturally were Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. Their abduction was the one that really sort of set the stage for what we think of as modern alien abduction, including memory loss and lost time, that kind of thing. Well, they, they sort of introduced it into the popular consciousness. And, of course, there's a lot of evidence that the story that, that they had was influenced, or at least Barney's story was influenced quite heavily by... Um, the uh, Outer Limits television show back to the idea of aliens on television influencing the way the aliens look in uh, the cultural mythos. Her story also included uh, a lot of medical examination and subsequent alien exams and alien abduction stories began to include uh, things like implants of, of devices and experiments with flesh being taken, eggs being stolen, sperm being stolen, sexual components, probing. Um, and I don't know why the alien's anal probe came into be part of the story, but uh, I think it may be Travis Walton's story about his abduction that was the first one to... Uh, 
have the anal probe and the sort of horrible violations that I, I'm familiar with. That doesn't mean that's the first one, but I, I really don't know why the, the aliens would have this sort of need because uh, it seems like whatever their medical skills are, the rectum is not the best place to get uh, biological info about a species. But they seem to want cow butts and to probe humans. It's very odd. And as a skeptic, I would say it's very implausible. Well, I think my, from what I've read is that, is that typically the, the way they rationalize that is by suggesting that the aliens are, in fact, trying to do some sort of hybridization, uh, that they're trying to better understand human physiology, uh, perhaps in preparation for, <laughs> for injecting their own uh, superior alien sperm into our uh, our um, our culture. So uh, again, it's the same thing. To, to my mind, the same issue with crop circles. I mean, why, if aliens are creating these, why would they come all the way across the, the universe and the galaxy just to make circles in wheat? I mean, they really got nothing better to do. Oh, it really annoys me. I mean, why would they come all the way here just to make circles? They're pretty. Okay, yeah, they're pretty. But I mean, it, it's really obvious that this is something that human technology can easily reproduce with boards. <laughs> I, I know uh, be, people walking in a field at night can make crop circles. It, it's really been well explained, well documented. It's it's a human hoax that's turned into something of an art form. And there's just people out there who don't understand how simple this is. But it's it's it doesn't make any sense, and it, it, it ties into one of the other problems I have with aliens and the extraterrestrial hypothesis, uh, which I also actually I find insulting, which is the idea that that aliens had to come to Earth and teach people how to uh, do things, and in 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 like Eric von Daniken's stories, they come to Earth and they visit us and they give us their technology, and right. essentially what they're teaching us is how to stack rocks. What? I mean, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if they could come teach us anything, why stacking rocks? It's it's ridiculous. I and mean, yeah, the sto- the ro- the rocks they were stacking were very large, but it's possible to do with human equipment, ingenuity, and strength, and working together. And it's uh, insulting to I suggest that we needed space aliens to come down here to help show us how to stack rocks. Ridiculous. Well, the, yeah, the whole the whole notion that that you know people and humans aren't smart enough to be able to pull these things off without extraterrestrial intelligence is is just uh, you know frankly insulting. I mean, in fact, I think um, I think uh, uh, in uh, Karen's p- recent piece in the Coral Castle, I think that it touches on that as well. Yes, it does. That's one of the theories that Coral Castle was created by aliens, or that Ed Lead Skelman was somehow assisted by aliens, but. I don't know if it's an insult so much as just a way of explaining things that people can't understand, something they resort to. Yeah, it's that classic uh, component, the uh, or, or the thing we keep running into, the, the argument from ignorance. It just keeps coming up again and again. It's, um, you know, in this case, aliens, you know, help build Coral Castle, or aliens are responsible for uh, building crop circles, or aliens are responsible for the pyramids, or aliens are responsible for uh, our rise from primitive man to our current intelligence, or lack thereof. But but whatever. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, if you're going to claim aliens, you need to have proof, and, and there just isn't any. And, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is uh, um, that I see in, in, in television, especially like Linda Moulton Howell's Earth Files, is aliens being responsible for... Uh, 
cattle mutilations and animal mutilations. And in these stories, uh, they talk about animals who uh, have their soft parts removed. Uh, you know, their their rectums are cored out, as they say. Their lips removed, their tongues removed, just their eyes with laser precision. But I, I happened to run into a neighbor who just came back from a deer hunt, and um, he had a very strange experience to report. Uh, but he's not a guy who knows anything about aliens or uh, uh, that sort of uh, mythology or or phenomena, if it is a phenomena. But what he reported to me was really, really interesting. Um, he had shot a small deer and wanted to stick around and see if he could get something larger. So he hung up the deer and field dressed it and put it under a tree and was going to come back within a couple hours to uh, take it back up to the hunting lodge and uh, you know get it set up so it could be processed. So they left it hanging and went hunting. And when they came back, he and his friend... Um, found the deer completely surrounded by uh, turkey vultures. And the turkey vultures, as he put it, had uh, to- had totally messed up the, the deer. They had uh, eaten its uh, rectum. That's one of the first things he pointed out. Uh, they had eaten out uh, its eyes. They had eaten out the deer's tongue. They had eaten the deer's lips. Everything that was soft and available, they had torn it away with their sharp uh, mouths and left uh, just a, a cored out uh, hole. Um, they got to the uh, bucket of uh, the offal and ate that too. But the important thing is he was there and saw it. He didn't just leave the deer and come back and all the parts were missing when he got back, which would have been weird. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it seems to me that that was a pretty good explanation for what happens with cattle mutilation. Birds come in and they take these parts, or predators or coyotes or, or, or other animals or creatures, come in, mundane things, things from Earth, not aliens with lasers. It's just animals here on Earth who normally eat these things come along and take these parts. I can certainly understand, though, uh, people living in cities you know, from the big smoke who haven't encountered these sorts of um, events before, not being able to to understand how they come about. Uh, I don't think it's a very good alternative explanation, but um, for people who haven't seen that at work, it's a, it could be a mysterious thing. Yes, mysterious and disgusting. Uh, a lot of the aspects of alien stories have elements that uh, are disturbing and disgusting, but the real question is, where's the evidence I mean, they make great stories. They're very interesting and creepy and mysterious. But where's the evidence? Monster Talk. Joining us to talk about aliens and the plausibility of such creatures visiting Earth is astronomer Dr. Phil Plate. Phil is a noted skeptic, the president of the James Randi Education Foundation, a noted science writer through his Bad Astronomy website, and also the author of the book Death from the Skies, now available in paperback. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Phil. Phil, in your book, you have an entire chapter about aliens coming to Earth, and you talk about a meteorite with the memorable name ALH84001. Can you tell our listeners uh, about that meteorite and what it means? Yeah, this is a meteorite that was found in Allen Hills. That's where the ALH comes from in the name, in Antarctica. And Antarctica is a really good place to look for meteorites because if they're sitting there on the ice... 
you know, they're easy to spot, this, this rock sitting out in the middle of a field of ice. So they find a lot of them there, and when they got this one back, they realized it was from Mars. Now, when, it, when this news came out, a lot of people were saying, well, how do we know it's from Mars? Well, we know it's from Mars because we have samples of Mars from earlier probes, and we know what the chemistry of Mars is like. And when you look at this meteorite, there are little tiny bubbles in it. And when you check the bubbles themselves, what's in it? There's gas, like atmosphere, inside of these little tiny bubbles. It matches the chemical ratios that we see on Mars. So we're pretty sure these things come from Mars. And the way this works is uh, there's an asteroid impact, smacks into the planet. This rock goes flying out into space. It drifts out in space for a while and then lands into Antarctica or wherever, and it gets picked up. And when they examine this thing under a microscope, they found all sorts of interesting stuff. And they were actually this, – this was like in 1996, I think it was, when the news came out. And they had basically four or five reasons that they thought that there was evidence that possibly Mars once had life on it in this rock. And it, it depended on – Again, chemical ratios, there was magnetite, which is this magnetic ore, and magnetite can be created abiologically, I suppose you could say, without life, just chemically, but it also can be excreted to be discrete from bacteria. And then the last thing they found was this little wormy dude, a little segmented thing that looks like a bacterium, but it was really, really small, much smaller even than bacteria on Earth. And it was a big uproar and a hubbub and a fuss and a foo-for-all and whatever other sort of 200-year-old phrase you can think of. Uh, and it, it sort of died away because the evidence wasn't that strong. Now NASA has released some new stuff saying, hey, maybe maybe we were right all along. It looks like this magnetite may have been you know, indicating that there was life on Mars. I'll be honest, I've not read the papers yet. I'm a little bit behind. I've got them sitting on my computer. I don't want to comment too much on the new stuff until I actually read the science. But a lot of people are, are going ballistic about this, thinking it's pretty cool. Well, what kind of life forms are we talking about? Giant, lumbering, tripod, bug-eyed monsters. Uh, in, well, it's a, it's a little rock. So, you know, they're, they're not like riding the magic carpet from Mars to here. So we're talking fairly primitive bacteria. But again, you know, this evidence, it, this is, there's no smoking gun. From what I've read of the papers, they're saying, yeah, we can't exclude life. It's not like it's, you know, there it is in a Petri dish. But it's interesting. Well, given, given the climate of Mars, what would, you, what would you expect to see in its inhabitants? Well, nowadays, I'd expect basically nothing. The atmosphere is only 1% the pressure of Earth's. So it's almost entirely carbon dioxide which is a relatively inert gas, although you know trees can breathe it, and we don't see large-scale vegetation on Mars. On the other hand, Mars has a lot of water. It's in the form of ice. It's frozen, but uh, it's got a lot of it. They keep finding it farther, clo- well, closer to the equator than they expected. Uh, they're, they're basically meteorite impacts that when they hit the surface, they dig down a little bit when the crater's excavated, and uh, the orbiting... There's an orbiting probe there, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, with a super high-resolution camera. And these pictures of these craters, some of these craters are fresh. They're only a few years old. And there's ice all around them. And they say, yeah, it's water ice. We can tell. So there's plenty of you know, ice uh, on Mars, or water in the form of ice. The question is, is there any liquid water? Because we, we don't think that bacteria can do too well evolving in ice, but in water they do pretty well. The question is, you know, is it still there? And that's the question that's hard to answer without going there with a pickaxe and finding out. From what I've heard, we can um, there are studies taking place at, at uh, places like Yellowstone that we can tell a lot 
from uh, the geothermal activity there and that potentially uh, if life forms existed on other planets, we'd be talking thermophiles or something like that. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, direction that this thing has gone. These so-called extremophiles, bacteria or or critters that live in super high temperatures, super cold temperatures, uh, things that would poison us instantly. These black smokers, these vents at the bottom of the ocean that had these tube worms around them. And there's a tremendous amount of sulfur and the water is basically well above the boiling point. Although there's so much pressure down there that uh, the water doesn't actually boil. And life is there, and and it makes me wonder, did the life evolve first in places that were more habitable and then adapted to those extreme conditions, or did they evolve in those extreme conditions? And there are bacteria that they found in a South African mine two miles underground that live off of uh, rocks that have radioactive decay in it, and the radioactive decay creates chemicals that these bacteria live off of. So these things never see sunlight, but they have an energy source. So you never know. Uh, and, and what you said, Karen, about Yellowstone, there are weird bacteria that eat the, uh, the sulfury minerals that are bubbling up in, in the, uh, what is it, the devil's pothole, devil's teapot, the really crazy colored uh, uh, pond at Yellowstone. Yeah. And, and uh, there are bacteria that live off this stuff. So it's not crazy to think that on Mars, on uh, Europa, a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, there could be life even under those extreme conditions. Uh, uh, Phil, do you have any reason to assume that that life that you might find on Mars or Jupiter would uh, come to Earth to um, to anally probe um, hillbillies or anybody else? Yeah, I don't. I, I get a que- this question a lot when I give lectures, especially when I'm talking to kids. They always ask me if I believe in, in UFOs and aliens. And there's a long answer to it, but I usually say no and yes. I, I think that given what we know about astronomy, how many stars are in the galaxy, how many stars are like the sun, and we're starting to, to detect enough planets orbiting other stars to get statistics. And it's looking like at a minimum 10% of the stars in the galaxy have planets. So you're talking about you know, tens of billions of planets. Some of them are bound to be Earth-like. Some of them are bound to be um, able, able to support life. So, yeah, sure. I think statistically, it's it's a near certainty that there's life out in space. The question is, are they you know are they coming here to anally probe hillbillies or cut the butts out of cows? Which I think is silly because honestly, you just have to come to Earth once. You cut one butt out of a cow, you take it home, and you clone it. It's a lot cheaper. So I'm you know I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing the evidence for flying saucers. And I get every time I write about this, I get a, a million UFO people commenting saying, "What about this? What about this?" And I say, "Look." I'm really clear about this. You cannot show me a fuzzy video. You cannot show me a fuzzy picture. Even a picture is no longer trustworthy with that whole Photoshop thing that the kids are using on the inner tubes and the tweeter today. So you got to you gotta have more than that. Show me a piece of metal with a non-terrestrial isotope ratio on it. Show me freaking Klaatu and Gort walking out of a flying saucer on the White House lawn. You know, it wasn't really a White House lawn in the in the movie, but... You know, give me this. Give me a minute here. Um, that's what I want. If you're going to make a claim that there are aliens coming here and visiting us and want us to be good to each other and all of that stuff, I'm going to need more than a, a fuzzy picture of a street light. Phil, how does isotopic evidence actually demonstrate what planet uh, a metal comes from? 
Well, it's not concrete or it's not, you know, 100 percent. But basically where the Earth formed in the solar system and, and the processes it's gone through over time, you get a certain ratio of, of elements. If you look at, for example, oh, I don't know, uranium, let's just say. There are different forms of uranium. It's not just all one thing. It depends on how many neutrons are in the nucleus of a uranium atom. They all have the same uh, number of uh, uh, protons in them. I think it's 92. But they have different numbers of neutrons, and it, that, that gives you isotopes. So there's uranium-235, and there's uranium-238, and all these different things. And so the ratio of these isotopes sort of depends on where something formed. So, for example, on this Martian meteorite in the atmosphere of Mars, there are different ratios of elements, different ratios of these isotopes than there are on Earth. And it's in a way, it's like a fingerprint, and you can tell that something came from a certain place. So if you came from Alpha Centauri and you, you have your spaceship and you leave a piece of metal that has some bizarre ratio of iron in it or molybdenum or, or nickel or whatever – that would be a pretty clear-cut case. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be faked, but at a bare minimum, I'd like to see something like that. Really, what I, what I want is, is Klaatu on the White House lawn. Phil, how would you fake that? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to fake something like that. How would, how would it be done? Well, it would, it would be expensive. <laughs> You'd have to go to a, you know, a metallurgical lab and say, I need this much of this isotope and this much of that isotope, and then you would melt them and mix them together. When I worked on, on Hubble, for example... We had a special lamp that we used to calibrate our camera, and it, it had platinum in it. Platinum happened to be good uh, for what we needed. The problem is platinum has different isotopes, and it, it smeared out the data that we got from this lamp. So we had to actually get monoisotopic platinum. It had to be platinum of all one flavor. And I was told that that single lamp, which was you know the size of an overhead projector lamp, cost a million dollars. So you know, but that's platinum, and it's expensive to start with. But, but there you go. It would be very expensive to do this, but not, you know, if, if you were a wealthy billionaire and had a, a, a wicked sense of humor and plenty of time, it wouldn't be impossible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. The claims are certainly never that uh, complex. They're always very superficial. Well, yes, it's, it's you know, crushed corn stalks. You know, no human could have walked on these. 
clearly this was trans-dimensional humans. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite line from Ghostbusters. No human would stack books this way. <laughs> that, that's like the skeptic. It should be the skeptic mantra. You probably get asked this all the time, but uh, what's the way that you like to describe this this big astronomical issue that we often overlook, which is how big is our solar system? Can you talk about that? I think I think one of the problems with the whole the whole UFO thing is that is that we all have a lousy sense of scale, and people just don't understand how far away the stars are. You, you really, honestly, either have to have aliens who can live practically forever, or they have to have faster than light drive. And as far as we know, faster than light drive is impossible. And and look. The Pluto probe, the New Horizons probe, which is like halfway to Pluto, is the fastest, as far as I know, the fastest probe that has ever been launched. And it's going to take, was it nine years to get to Pluto? Nine years. And so that kind of gives you a sense. I actually um, filmed a documentary recently where we built a scale model solar system on a football field. I actually went to the, uh, the, the, the Colts Stadium here in Denver and put the sun on the goal line and put Pluto on the other goal line and the earth I, you know, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at the numbers but I think the earth was like two yards away or something crazy like that and it would have been smaller than a grain of sand at that scale the, the solar system is huge it would take you 70 years to drive to the sun uh, now wait a minute do I have that number right I, it might be 70 years to fly an airplane to the sun but it takes decades to get there in any sort of terrestrial conveyance and, and even our, our rocket it took three days to get to the moon with Apollo so you know these these objects, even the nearest objects, are tremendously far away. You better you better pack a lunch if you're going. Yeah, I've I've looked at some of the experiments available online to sort of do something similar with peas and grains of sand, and um, yeah, the universe is really big. I mean, Douglas Adams yeah. really got that right, but I mean, it's really really big. I would say I would call that its defining characteristic. It's bigness. That's, that's why we call it space, folks. I went to see 2012, and oh. Oh, sorry. The beginning of that film, yet another example of Hollywood getting it wrong with the big uh, uh, graphic showing the planets close together for the syzygy. Yeah, and the planets never actually line up like that. They did that in Tomb Raider as well and a bunch of other movies. And, uh, yeah, the planet, they, they, if there's any way they can screw up astronomy in Hollywood, that's, that's pretty much on the chopping block right away. Well, Phil, let me ask you about that because one of my favorite films and, and perhaps one of yours as well is Contact. And at the very beginning of that, there's a really beautiful sequence uh, sort of showing, you know, the, the, the radio signals that were going out. I think it was the television signals. Do you remember that? Of course. It's one of the best opening sequences ever filmed. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to get guess how, how realistic and, and how, how well thought – how well, well it was well wrong. Thought. <laughs> I mean, they, they still botched it, huh? Yeah, but you gotta you gotta you gotta say to yourself, you know, Carl Sagan wrote this, so chances are it's probably going to be better than anything else done. And basically, the 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 one or two mistakes that were in there. There's one mistake that was just a special effects thing. You actually fly through the Eagle Nebula, and it, and this is a famous nebula. It has the Pillars of Creation in it. If you look up Pillars of Creation on Google, you'll find the very famous Hubble picture of these three towering dust clouds where stars are forming. And they go through the nebula, and you're, back, you're sort of backing away from the Earth. And, and so you go through the nebula, and then you're seeing it from the other side, but it looks just like it does from this side. So, so they got left to right backwards. Oh, no. You have to be kind of an anal retentive jerk like me to even see something like that. Um, the, the big error in that sequence, if you want to call it that, is that before they even leave the solar system, you're hearing radio signals from like 30 years ago. And, of course, the... the Outer solar system isn't 30 light years away. It wouldn't work that way. But I'm, I'm chalking that up to artistic license. They didn't match up the radio signals to the distance. 
because it just didn't work on screen. And I'm, I'm always willing to give a movie the benefit of a doubt to tell a better story if the sacrifice is the science, as long as they're not sacrificing it to the point of it becomes a, um, you know, a Michael Bay movie or something like that. I like the, the new Godzilla movie, so... Actually, I enjoyed the new Godzilla movie. It was just different from the original. We're the only two. Well, you know, my son likes it. Did you have you seen Godzilla two thousand? No, no, Godzilla Final Wars. They even throw in that one too. No. Yeah, they've got all the monsters in that one. Uh, I mean, just like virtually every monster appears in that film is astonishing. Wow, I'll have to see that. I've always been a Geekra fan myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my son likes him too. Three heads, come on. Okay, alien question. Um, I've heard you talk about UFOs and how astronomers uh, should be seeing more of them. Yeah, this this is something I came up with a few years ago, and and uh, basically, it's not just a, it's not astronomers; it's mostly amateur astronomers. Uh, there aren't that many professional astronomers; only a few thousand. And in fact, you know, they're usually sitting at home or in an observatory computer room with uh, digital computers hooked up to the, to the telescopes, and they're not actually out there looking at the sky. But there are amateur astronomers who are out every clear night, and it's it's not really well known how many there are. We know there are at least you know several tens of thousands of amateur astronomers in just in the U.S. alone. So you've got a huge number of people who are out observing the skies, and this is dedicated observing. It's not just like walking out to their car and glancing up. And yet most of these UFO reports are coming from people in just those circumstances. They're, they're people who aren't used to seeing the night sky. They go out, they're, they're walking the dog, they're doing whatever, and they see something. And yet if you do this by man hours, uh, there's no way that uh, this ratio is tilted toward people who are not astronomers. In other words, um, there are more people looking for longer at the sky who understand the sky and know what they're looking at, in, the, in there being those guys being astronomers, those men and women. So uh, it seems to me that for every thousand UFOs reported, some fraction, some large fraction, half or more, should be coming from amateur astronomers. And the fact is there aren't. Now, I wrote about this in my first book, and I got a guy complaining. He wrote an article on the web saying, why, you know, here, here's a report from, from, you know, two reports from amateur astronomers. And I thought, really? Two reports out of the bazillion that come out every year, he found two from amateur astronomers. Come on. So the point is, people look up in the sky, and when they see a halo around the sun, or sun dogs, which are uh, reflections near the sun caused by ice crystals, or any number of things in the sky that they're not used to, they report flying saucers, or, or they're just not used to seeing them. That's that's my argument, and uh, you know Stan Friedman, the uh, UFO guy, Stan Friedman, uh, took offense at this, uh, basically saying that astronomers are too busy looking through their telescopes to see it. And I thought that was pretty funny because I, I, I'm guessing he must either not know very many amateur astronomers, or the ones he knows must be very odd because most of the ones I know are are constantly looking up with binoculars or just their eyes. Uh, in between looking through the eyepiece. And so my argument, I think, still stands. Most of these reports should be from amateur astronomers. They're not. Ergo, most of the reported UFOs are not real flying saucers. They're a mistaken identity. Yeah, this hits on a common problem in, in cryptozoology and a lot of paranormal, well, almost every aspect of paranormal investigations I look into, that people argue from ignorance. It's the... I don't know what it is, so it's an extraterrestrial vehicle. I don't know what that animal is, so it's uh, a Bigfoot. 
this just keeps happening all throughout where people admit they're ignorant, but fill in the blank with the thing that they're most comfortable with uh, putting there. Yeah, it's aliens of the gaps, I guess. Like God of the gaps, you know, where, where religious people always say God did it when there's some gap in our scientific knowledge. Uh, it's the same sort of thing with flying saucers. I didn't understand that. Therefore, it must be transdimensional aliens from the future who have come back to, you know, anally probe me. And it's funny because a lot of these really classic UFO examples like the Phoenix Lights are completely explained with military maneuvers and different things like that. We know, we know that the stealth bomber uh, and the SR-71, well, the SR-71 is a better example, the old Blackbird, is 1970s technology. It was completely secret until relatively recently, and the top speed of that machine is still top secret. So we're talking about stuff that's been around for 30 or 40 years and is still being held secret. What the heck does the military have now that they're not telling us about? So it, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just plain and simple logic. They've had 30 years to improve on the SR-71. Who knows what's, what's up there and could be mistaken for a flying saucer. And we know that people mistake ordinary stuff for a flying saucer. It happens all the time. Yeah, the uh, hypothesized Aurora craft and uh, even the blimp craft, people say that it may be accounting for some. Um, and you know what else? The uh, unmanned vehicles, those things can do G-force maneuvers that a pilot craft can't do. Right, and we, we've seen a lot of those as well. There are plenty of um, uh, these, what are they, UAVs, is that right? Unmanned automatic vehicles, aeronautic, I don't remember what, what it stands for. But yeah, you get these things, and they, they, that's where they got a lot of the telemetry over Iraq during the First and Second Iraq Wars and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, yeah, you're right. It, those things are, are designed not to be seen, but there are other, other craft up there. You know, whenever I see a report that says, I saw several lights flying in formation, did right-angle turns, my first thought is wedding candles. You, you take a garbage bag and you tie a candle underneath it and the candle heats the air up and it basically turns into a hot air balloon. And these things have been uh, – it happens all the time in the summer. That's when a lot of people get married. And they can fool people. There was a pilot. I've got this on my blog someplace, a pilot from New Jersey who actually was interviewed by the news. And, of course, they love talking to pilots because people assume, A, pilots are authority figures and, B, pilots know the sky. And, in fact, that's not really true. Uh, and, and not well, not necessarily true, I should say. And this guy was saying, I was I saw this thing and it did a right angle turn in, in the sky and, and shot off at high speed. And it was shown conclusively that this was basically a collection of balloons that this guy was fooled by. So you can't trust any of these reports. Eyewitness reports are the worst things to trust, even from somebody you might think is an authority. Yeah, there's so many times I've seen things in positions where I watched aircraft. And it appeared that they were standing still in the sky, and then I would, I would change position, and it would appear that suddenly the aircraft had started moving really fast, which was odd. Oh, heck, if you're driving and the moon is rising through the trees, it looks like the moon is following you. And it, You know, that never worked for me. It works for my daughters, but not me. It doesn't look like that way to you? I've never been able to see it. Well, you're inhuman. Bill, speaking of uh, claims, UFO and alien claims, uh, it's ironic that you live in Colorado and a lot of uh, these claims seem to be coming out of there at the moment. Uh, and in fact, today I was writing about the ET Commission uh, in Denver, the proposal for that. Could you tell us a bit about that, if you've been following that? <laughs> yeah, actually, I heard about it and then started writing up a blog post and then saw yours. So mine will go up pretty soon, too, link into yours. Yeah, there's this guy, um, Peckman. Yeah, he, um, he actually had bit, made a bit of his name for himself before the alien thing because he was trying to get the Denver 
city council or the Denver government to establish a, an alien affairs commission. Then this alien video came out where he said, look, it's an alien in the window, and there's no way this could be faked. And then the guys from Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society faked it basically in an hour and made their video look better than his, which I thought was great. And he's back. He evidently has collected enough signatures that he's forced a ballot initiative in Denver to to create this uh, extraterrestrial affairs commission uh, so that people have to investigate UFOs. And he's claiming that he's got private investors so that this won't cost the government any money. But that's ridiculous because it's going to take up the time of the government, which costs money. So there's no way this isn't going to cost money. And, oh, and by the way, it's a freaking waste of time. Uh, You know, at at some point, you have to wonder what people are thinking uh, when they look at fuzzy pictures and stuff and say, yes, this is clear evidence of aliens. And this is a colossal waste of time. Happily... There's some, uh, there was a government official in Denver saying, I have real things to worry about. I don't need to worry about this made-up stuff. So I was pretty happy about that. Well, I hear that he'd falsified a lot of those signatures that he'd collected as well. Yeah, um, I saw that on your blog post, but I, I didn't have time to look that up. Where did you, where did you hear that? Uh, well, apparently I've been told by a number of sources, by the, the guys from the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society, and also there was an article uh, in the Denver Post, claiming that I think he'd collected about 10,000 signatures and only 4,000 of them were valid, but that was sufficient for this to be put onto the ballot. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> and and I guess some of them were, you know, ALF, ET, Klaatu. I guess, yeah, 6,000 some of them, yeah. <laughs> do, you think, do you think this will get passed? And and the thing is, it, it very well might. And mm. that that's the part that kills me. You know, there, there might be a real thing here. Carl Sagan used to say that, I think, you, you know, that whether these are mass hallucinations or really aliens coming, either way, it's interesting. Why are people reporting so many UFOs? And I, I think it's actually a lot more mundane. Uh, of course, we crave this sort of excitement. Uh, that's why we go to movies about aliens and why we read science fiction. Uh, but when you come down to the reality of it, honestly, when you look at these things skeptically, these photographs, these videos, these stories, there's just nothing to them. And, and I, the, the UFO people get so upset with me when I say that. And it's like, but, but how can you claim this is an alien when it's so easy to fake a picture better than this? And so I, I just don't see it. And I think spending a lot of money on it is just not worth the time. Well, there's an interesting parallel with with the monsters as well. I mean, there are people who have uh, tried to get uh, get you know, actual you know U.S. government sponsored expeditions to locate uh, Bigfoot and uh, and Yeti and things like that. So there's always somebody out there who's complaining that the reason we haven't found these these monsters is because uh, no one's thrown money at it. So yeah, except you know every every Yahoo out in the middle of nowhere sees them, and there's tons of video of them completely faked. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't think this is something the government should be investigating. It's a little bit like SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. That was a NASA project, and they got basically booted out by Congress. You know, in my opinion, I think that's probably the right decision. I, I don't think NASA should be doing something like that. I think that's something that should be privately funded. They are privately funded by Paul Allen from Microsoft, for example. They get, they get funding from other people as well. Uh, and it, it, it frees them up to be able to do things the way they want. And, in fact, SETI is advancing uh, in leaps and bounds. They've got the Paul Allen Array out in California. Uh, and Seth Shostak, the, one of the lead astronomers there, uh, is, is fairly convinced that, statistically speaking, if there are alien civilizations broadcasting in our galaxy, we should be able to detect them within about 20 years. 
I was going to say there's the City at Home project too through UC Berkeley if people want to get involved in this. Right, that's been out a long time. That's a screensaver you can download for your computer. And it runs when your computer's not running. And basically, it gets you, you get sent packets of SETI data that they collect using radio telescopes. And you get that, and, and your computer's used to process little pieces of it that then get sent back to the, the central computer, which, which puts them all together. Um, because basically, the amount of data they get, it's just impossible to analyze it all. And this has been running for years, uh, and it, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and you never know. The, the person who actually finds that one packet that shows that E.T.'s calling us might be somebody... You know, who's, who's basically not happened to be playing World of Warcraft at that particular moment. And it's, it, it, it was actually the first of these uh, background processing devices, and there's a bunch of them out now because it's just too hard to, to build a computer fast enough to do all this. But if you get 100,000 people with this screensaver on their computers, that's a lot of computing power. It's certainly a lot more than even a single supercomputer 20 years ago was. So it's a pretty cool idea. Phil, have you ever worked at Arecibo or been to Arecibo? No. Chupacabra lore suggests that uh, the astronomers there may also be doing genetic research, uh, and that's what caused the Chupacabra to come into existence. Really? Because there's a radio telescope there. They're doing biological engineering for things to suck on goats. Well, see, now it sounds silly when you say it. Well, we do have genes, and I actually have used my genes to reproduce once, so I guess that makes me something of an expert. And you're wearing genes, right? Uh, flannel, actually, but uh, no, fleece. Ooh, fleece, which comes from? <gasps> mm. Uh, mm, we've come full circle. <laughs> Phil, how does the James Randi Educational Foundation's charter deal with matters like UFO claims and claims of extraterrestrials visiting the Earth? Is that something you have to deal with or foresee having to deal with in the future? That's actually a tougher question than you might think. You know, For example, in my opinion, if aliens are coming to visit the Earth, they're natural. Right? They evolved on another planet. They developed the technology to create wormholes or, or some sort of very fast travel to get here. And, and so if they come here, it's not paranormal at all. It's totally natural. So at what level, you know, how do you define paranormal? Uh, and, and we could argue about that for a long time. But if you're talking about maybe fairies or something that just is completely not supported by modern science, uh, fairies, gnomes, uh, I, I don't know, maybe even Bigfoot might count because there's no sort of biological antecedent for, for Bigfoot. So maybe maybe that would count. The charter for the JREF, you know, I, I don't know if you could really call it that, but just our sort of our mission is to educate people about science and to be skeptical of claims, to demand evidence of people's claims. So look, you know, if somebody comes up and says, here's Bigfoot, it's like, oh, look, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Harry and the Hendersons, and, and we take them to a biology lab, and they say, yeah, look, this, this is a genetically clear example of a hominid that is not, you know, human and, and matches the description of Bigfoot, then, yeah, you know, we'll be talking about it. But until then, these are just claims without evidence or at least very sketchy evidence. Uh, and so in, in that sense, it, it falls under everything else that the JREF does, and that is show us the evidence and let's use good science and logic to determine what we're looking at here. The JRF is as interested in claims of pseudoscience as claims of the paranormal, isn't it? Well, sure. And, and it's one of these things where, again, what's the dividing line? If you have guys running around you know, misinterpreting thermal camera readings and claiming everything that bumps in the night is a ghost, is that a pseudoscience or is it paranormal? And I would say, hey, it's both. Mm. Um, 
it just depends on, on, I suppose, what it is you're talking about. Anti-vaxxers, all the alternative medicines that we know don't work, like chiropractic and homeopathy and acupuncture, those might be more pseudoscience than uh, paranormal, unless you can show me that homeopathy, which you know, in the end is just distilled water, if that does work, that goes against every, uh, every law of science we know. So it, it would kind of have to be paranormal if it worked. Happily, we know it doesn't any more than the placebo effect. So it's, it's not even a pseudoscience. It's just garbage. Okay, here's a question for you. And this may not be a very scientific, but it might be something we do with future guests as well. What's your favorite monster? Oh my gosh! Uh, I I don't know. I, when I was a kid, I was always partial to Godzilla. I liked Gamera too. I had a thing about turtles. I liked turtles a lot when I was a kid. Really interested in them. But um, I don't know. I kind of like um, Gamera is very neat. He's filled with turtle meat. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I actually, I in fact like liked uh, Cloverfield a lot. The monster itself was interesting, but I liked the movie. Yeah, I thought his parasites were as frightening as he was, or she was, or it was. <laughs> Scared the crap. Um, I watched again uh, recently, and I thought, yeah, still pretty good. I don't see what everybody was complaining about. Yeah, I was kind of sickened by the handheld camera, but I liked the movie. And I like, um, you know, if I had to say what's my favorite monster movie, I if you for a sufficiently broad definition of monster movie, I would go with Five Million Years to Earth. What was released in England is Quatermass in the Pit. Yeah, I have that movie too on DVD. Watch it every couple of years with some friends. Uh, that movie freaked the hell out of me when I was a kid. And then I saw it again, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, and sat back and thought, this movie freaking rocks. It's got everything in it. It's got ghosts and goblins and Martians and flying saucers and cavemen and telekinesis and the devil. Yes, the devil with a capital D. It, it came out in like the 1960s. It's one of the Hammer Horror movies. Uh, and it, it's very slow to start, and then it builds. It's a ridiculous movie. I mean, it just builds on ridiculous premise on ridiculous premise, and then ends with London being destroyed, and, and it, oh, it's just fantastic. Not a very happy, feel good ending. It's one of the reasons I love. It. Yeah, I love this movie. I, I watch it. Like I say, I watch it every few years. Uh, that one, and I like to watch John Carpenter's The Thing. Both of those movies just really work well, even after all these years. That's my favorite horror movie. There will never. I can't even imagine a better horror movie being made. There's actually a scene in the movie where you see a guy. I mean, the premise of the movie is they unearth this alien in Antarctica, and it can it can change its shape. It actually becomes a person. It takes you over. And uh, uh, there's a scene in the movie where you see it approaching a doorway, and you see a guy's shadow on the door, and you never find out who that guy is. And there's literally no way to know. You can narrow it down to two people, but you never know which one it is. And they did that on purpose to keep the suspense going. You really just don't know who's alien and who isn't. It's a, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, the thing has a rather bleak ending too. Another another happy feel good ending. Yeah, Man, it's depressing. Yeah, a lot of uh, these alien visitation scenarios aren't very happy. Is is it a better ending than the uh, the ending of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers in uh, the seventy seven version with Donald Sutherland? Yeah, it's the same sort of feeling at the end. You're like, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a happy, not a happy ending. And I'll say that two of my favorite movies of all time, both directed by John Carpenter, both star Kurt Russell. The other one being Big Trouble in Little China. Also, for a broad enough definition of a monster movie, there are monsters in it. Since we're talking about infrequently filmed scary movies, what do you think about the uh, British film uh, Curse the Demon? Have you seen that? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I like that one because the hero of the movie is a skeptic. 
Yeah, but he's wrong. But in the end, but he figures it out. Well, he's wrong. But when presented with incontrovertible evidence of the supernatural, he uses his knowledge of the paranormal to thwart evil. That that's another movie that honestly, when I was a kid, it freaked the hell out of me. It's a giant bat demon which you know picks you up and shakes you to death and throws you down, and you only see it twice in the very beginning and the very end of the movie. But the tension in the movie when when the the hero is running through the woods and this thing is chasing him, that's honestly very tense. And in fact, there's a Kate Bush song that actually samples that scene. Yeah, for um, Hounds of Love, but she couldn't actually get the rights; they had to re-record it. It's coming, yeah. Yeah, it's in the so trees. You got to be a complete, you know, monster dork to know this stuff. Hey, okay. A lot of the information we talked about, as far as aliens, uh, comes from your extensive uh, familiar with science fiction and science, um, and you've written about this in your new book, Death from the Skies. Which is out in paperback now, right? The paperback came out a couple of months ago. The paperback cover is a lot cooler. It's like this comic book. Uh, Nathan Fox, it's a famous comic book artist who did it. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really terrific cover. And uh, it's, it's a great book, and it, you know, it may just save your life. Extraordinary claims, Phil. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Monster Dog. Today you heard from Dr. Phil Plate, author of the book Death from the Skies, talking with us about the plausibility of aliens from another planet visiting the Earth. While the existence of aliens within the confines of the universe seems plausible from a statistical perspective, no evidence of such creatures has been verified by science. As scientists go on searching the skies for signs of intelligence, we'll continue to do our part to try and promote it down here. I'm Blake Smith, and on behalf of Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno, thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You can join other skeptics and believers in discussing these and other topics at the Monster Talk section of the official Skeptic Forum, www.skepticforum.com. You can read more from Ben Radford at Skeptical Inquirer magazine and on his Live Science column. And you can hear more from Dr. Karen Stolzno at badlanguage.com. That's bad-language.com skeptic.org and at her CFI blog The Naked Skeptic or even on Twitter you can get links to my articles and some ridiculously bad puns by following me on Twitter twitter.com forward slash Dr. Atlantis these links of course will be available in the show notes we appreciate your patronage and hope you'll leave us reviews on iTunes it's a free way to let us know how we're doing the show's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys the introductory music is by Man Manly and all music is obtained with permission via musicalley.com. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. Can you uh, pat your head and rub your tummy at the same time? All right, well, all right, just making note. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.